Hey there, friends. It's Eddie, host of The New Activist. You are listening or about to listen to a re-released episode from season one, our first season, obviously. That's why we named it one of The New Activist. We are putting these out as we are preparing for season three, which will be awesome. I'm excited for you to hear it. As a quick reminder, if you would please go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM and fill out that form. It is not a, you don't need to give money or anything, just fill out this form. It will send a letter to elected officials and it will be very helpful, not only in the work of IJM, but also in supporting this podcast. Thanks for doing that. Enjoy this episode. This is the new activist. Well, this is indeed The New Activist, episode 13 with Jeremy Courtney. My name is Eddie, and I am one of the hosts of this show, and it is a privilege to be here with you on this last show of the season. We won't be gone long. We'll be back January, February. We're going to take a little time off. We've already started pre-production for season two, and I am very excited. But today we're going to hear part two of an interview that started last week. And I will say, um, this interview could stand alone. If you didn't want to listen to part one and you just wanted to hear two, but I would strongly urge you to hear part one of this interview because in part one, Jeremy really sets the stage for what what his work is about, what the work of Preemptive Love Coalition is about. And he also pushes, well, at least pushed on me to really consider what it means to love our neighbor. And that's where we sort of pick it up today. Preemptive Love Coalition is a very daring and brave organization of people that are fearlessly, well, I guess maybe not fearlessly, because they probably are afraid sometimes, but bravely loving people well. They work all around Syria, Fallujah, Iraq, and uh, Jeremy is going to take us inside some of that work right now. Here is part two of my conversation with Jeremy Courtney. Take me through the beats of actually making your way to Iraq and starting Preemptive Love. Yeah, I mean, you know, our our route has been rather circuitous in some ways, and um, it's... It's kind of hard, honestly. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be really vulnerable here, but it's, it's actually very hard to explain how things have worked out as they have. Um, because living in the context where we've lived for so many years now and experiencing what we've experienced, the, the trauma, the betrayals, the, the chronic fear, the paranoia that we have inside ourselves... It, it, has, it has fundamentally changed us. And it's changed us in ways that no one could possibly understand except people who have lived through something similar. And, and so it's caused us to kind of go off this, this trail where we see the world in certain ways and we now, our theology has changed, our relationship to the church has changed, our, 
our relationship to ourselves and and inside our own family as a married couple has changed. And I know I know some of this is just part of growing up, and some of this is is just part of all that. But uh, I I'm inclined to believe that some of it is relatively unique to to the context in which we live and some of the the things that we've lived through in that way, while still keeping a lot of relationship and a huge friendship base back in America, in the West. Um, so our, a lot of our friends are people who haven't lived through these things. And, and we, we draw so much energy and inspiration from those friends. But we're just, we're out of step with one another in some ways. That's different than if you're an Iraqi or a Syrian or a Libyan and you've lived through these kind of things and all your friends around you have lived through these kind of things and you, you all share the same jokes and you, you know the same history dates and you, you have the same trauma and you've gone through similar healing trajectories. I offer all that to, to preface this. Um, so our first step in the right direction, our, our kind of first beat, we, after 9-11, we knew that we wanted to be a part of, of loving Muslims. Uh, we knew that we were a, a community out of step with the nationalist rhetoric that said, America is the best, America is the greatest, we should go turn Afghanistan into a parking lot. And while we're at it, let's just throw on a war in Iraq as well. That, that just, that wasn't us. Um, we wanted to move toward Muslims. We wanted to see justice happen. We wanted to work out our own pain uh, with regard to this, these attacks and what it meant for us. But we just weren't going to go that, that militarized route. So we became missionaries is really what, what we had on offer, what was served up to us as the best response was to go be church planters, uh, to be maybe more specific. Right. Um, and so that was our early days were, were really about learning a lot about Islam, um, growing a real love for the people, uh, learning about history of the places that we were going to live and work. And, and perhaps most profoundly, this, this idea, this, I think, fairly uniquely Christian idea of incarnation, that we were going to take on the flesh of the place and the, the people that we were going to live among, and we were going to be like them. We were going to enculturate ourselves and do as much as we could like them, rather than be these weird outsiders who, who try to kind of stay aloof and bring some gospel down from the mountain, we were going to be with the people and live among them. Uh, what I have come to realize over the years is that in my own heart, at least, it was conquering by another name. Uh, yeah. And I don't, I don't need that to be a comment on all missions everywhere. I don't need that to be a comment on church planting. I don't need to be that, that to be a comment on anyone else except me. I, I, I fancied myself not a violent, militant, conquering person. I had chosen the route of peace. Mm. They were going to kill Muslims. I was going to save Muslims. What it took me some years in, and it took me a number of good Muslim friend relationships, and it took me living in different neighborhoods, in different languages, among different ethnic groups, to 
eventually come to the conclusion that I was actually a conqueror all those years. What I, what I personally really wanted was still the obliteration of Islam and the obliteration of Muslims. And I wanted their cultures and their people to be largely remade in my image, no matter the rhetoric that I, that I fancied it up with. I knew, I knew that was inappropriate. And so I knew how to kind of get around saying that on the face of things. But in my own heart, deep down, I was a conqueror through and through. And the preemptive love era, the, the era of moving toward um, providing tangible services for people and, and acting without as much of an agenda and, and things of that nature, it, it saved me. It saved me from my own conquering tendencies. And so this conversation about who is your neighbor has, has expanded as I've laid down my arms and, and really allowed my, myself to love with, I think, less of an agenda than I had in my early years. Um, I, I've been wrestling on whether or not to ask you this question because it's just delicate, but I realize, I realize as you have been speaking, this is your day to day. So, um, are you afraid of dying and are you afraid of your family being hurt because you are in a really dangerous area? I don't know how else to ask it. I, I, I'm like, yeah. are, are you afraid? Yeah. Um, some days more than others. Yeah. I, I'm leery of giving the impression that all day, every day, I just live in the most chaotic war zone and I'm lucky to make it home for dinner any day of the week. Yeah. That's, that's not true. Paint, paint uh, a picture for me. Then. Tell me what is true then. Tell me what it's like, because in my mind, that's exactly what your world looks like. You put on yeah. protective gear and run to your Humvee and then get to work and come back. That, yeah, can't, and that can't be right. <laughs> there's, well, there's something obviously very, um, very sexy about that image, very ego stroking about letting that myth be out there about me mm. uh, and about our organization and about our work. But the, but the, the negative side effects of that beyond what it probably actually does to my own ego and, and our community is, is it paints Iraqis and Syrians and Libyans and Muslims in general with a very broad brush. And, and then I, you know, get on my soapbox and want to talk about why people won't let Syrian and Iraqi refugees come into America, but we can actually be a part of creating the very narrative that makes it impossible for us to enact policies that would welcome them. If, if aid organizations and, and people like me are perpetuating the myth of, of violence everywhere, it, it can actually hurt the very people that we're ostensibly here to serve. So here's the truth. Mm. The truth is, there are very normal walkabout cities in Syria where I've been and in Iraq. We live in a very walkabout city. Um, our kids can walk around the corner to the grocery store. They're 10 and 8 and can buy eggs and walk home. And I don't even have to go get my groceries some days. Um, I walk to work some days. I drive to work some days. We have had maybe a couple of suicide bombings in our town in the 10 years we've lived here. We've had some kidnappings, but but there's never been an active war presence where we live. And that's true of a lot of towns and villages across Iraq. 
Um, what's weird is you look on a map, and, and it can be harrowing even in real life here, is that just, you know, at any given time across our years here, maybe 30 minutes down the road or an hour down the road is a town completely under Al-Qaeda control or ISIS control or whatever. Um, my wife could take a wrong turn and find herself minutes away from airstrikes, you know, and, and that's weird. It, it's it, and it sounds crazy, and it and it is kind of crazy. And I know we've been sort of inured or, or inoculated rather to to some of this, but but there are some there are some interesting security protocols and firewalls that kind of keep certain towns safe while other towns aren't. And ISIS upended a lot of that, and so it's it's been like mid twenty fourteen when ISIS sprung on the world stage was a crazy scary time because a lot of the rules didn't seem to apply anymore. And they were, they were crossing boundaries and they were taking over cities left and right and no one knew where they were going to be, where they were going to stop. But generally speaking, my family is safe. We have to more or less choose to be unsafe. We have to choose to go to the hard places and continue to put our lives on the line in places of risk and, and greater danger to serve people who who need it most. And, and we do that. We understand that one of us may die. Um, my staff uh, sometimes are in harm's way on days when I'm in the office, and sometimes that's vice versa. But the general rule is I won't ask anyone to do something I won't do myself. So if, if we're working in Fallujah militarized zone with stuff going off around us, I'm I'm either going to be there or I'm going to be pining to be there. Uh, I'm not going to just send brown Muslim people in to do the work that I'm unwilling to do myself, as if their lives are worth less than mine. I'm going to interrupt here because the next question I'm going to ask Jeremy is essentially about something that was in the news and happening when I interviewed him in September. And I thought that the answer would be evergreen in that, uh, you know, the story would be unique and not much like this would happen again. I was wrong. On December 2nd, Jeremy tweeted, and I quote, preemptive love en route to Mosul front lines for a major food delivery. ISIS still an area. Please pray. Your giving makes this possible. A few moments later, he tweeted, preemptive love inside Mosul front lines now. ISIS sniper and mortar fire all around. Please pray. This is what they're in the midst of. And so the story you are about to hear, and it's kind of a long form story, but the story you are about to hear is not just something that happened in September. It is something that is happening all the time as they try to deliver food and love their neighbor well. This has been a pretty active last couple of months for you all. Um, can you kind of talk me through what what has happened? Because I, um, having had the opportunity to chat with you before, there is a, a solemnness in your voice. Um, and it's just, I'm curious how things have been lately. Yeah, we're coming out of a very intense and at times very scary season. Uh, the Fallujah... What, what can now be called the liberation of Fallujah um, was once the battle of Fallujah and before that the siege of Fallujah. And 
working working for months to try and get food to tens of thousands of starving people. Uh, we we worked for months to try and get aid through the back door to smuggle aid in. We tried to put it on donkeys who knew the back roads and just send them in. We uh, knew some friends who were think of a small water bottle that you just pick up at the the gas station a water bottle's worth of rice or beans um just local civilian iraqis were filling water bottles with half rice and half air and floating them down the river hoping that some of them would make their way into the city and a few people could pick them up and eat uh we talked to the speaker of parliament and the military about airdrops we talked to militia leaders and really bad dudes about about smuggling and it just was impossible and then suddenly out of nowhere the battle for fallujah to liberate fallujah set off and suddenly we were sounding the alarm and asking friends to help raise money and and get the word out and we were able to to raise a lot of money really quickly and respond on the front lines after the battle had technically been won and Fallujah city and all the surrounding areas had been rid of ISIS presence and tens of thousands of guys were in those prison camps i was telling you about we were taking 110,000 pounds of food to one of these areas in the desert and in the middle of the day, we had the New York Times with us, and our trucks got stuck in the desert sand on this, this military special access road that we were on. And we got stuck, and the team tried to get the trucks unstuck for hours and hours and hours. And eventually, the New York Times turned back, and half the team turned back toward Baghdad. And our team leader said, I'm, I'm going to stay with the trucks. You sent me out to do a mission. You sent wow. me out to get this food to people. And oh I'm gosh. not leaving our donors' money and all this food that people desperately need out here in the desert. And it seemed reasonable enough. Technically, the battle was over. Technically, the military had, had moved north into the Mosul Corridor. And it, it, we weren't happy about it, but it, was, it seemed reasonable. So he stays overnight with the trucks and... About and the team that had turned back to Baghdad on their way home got stopped at a checkpoint. And at this checkpoint, they got held up by Iraqi security officials saying, you can't come in to Baghdad. You have to stay out in the desert. Um, there's been a curfew put on the city. There's been a massive ISIS outbreak in the area. You're not coming in. And so half our team is stuck at a checkpoint starting to see airstrikes and bombings and, and explosions in the sky go off relatively nearby, far too close for comfort. And I'm talking on the phone with our team leader at the trucks, and he's saying, look, there's a massive 450-car ISIS outbreak somewhere right around where I am. Don't worry about me. I know what to do. I'm going to strip our team down into our underwear and bury ourselves in the sand. Our, our brown skin will blend in better with the dirt than our white PLC shirts. And they did. They, they stripped down and, and buried themselves 
as best they could for the night because they just knew this ISIS convoy was going to roll up on them in any minute. Sure enough, some hours later, I'm, we're, we're communicating all through the night, and some hours later, we get a text. They are right here on top of us. And we would later come to learn that about 80 cars from this ISIS convoy roll up on our trucks start using them as a meeting point, calling other ISIS fighters to meet at the trucks. And they're standing probably 10, 15 feet away from our guys buried in the dirt. They can hear them talking on the phone, calling in other ISIS fighters and all this stuff. And, And I mean, it's just like the most insane movie scene that you can ever imagine. After all we've seen, after all, I mean, just think about it. Some days prior, he was feeding different ISIS characters who had killed one of his best friends. And, I mean, it was just a terrifying, terrifying situation. So much so that one of our drivers just freaks out and completely loses his cool and stands up. He's, he's hidden. He's safe. He stands up and surrenders in the pitch black night of the desert. And he surrenders, just hoping they'll have mercy on him. And our best guess is that these ISIS guys were so preoccupied with the airstrikes that were coming down on them and the bombs that were headed their direction that they, they just said, go, brother, go, get out of here. And he runs off into the pitch black night and they never see the two guys laying next to him who are burying their faces in the sand, praying to God for a miracle. Right down the road, just a couple of miles at the checkpoint, we're com- communicating with with that team and they're saying man these airstrikes are getting close and I'm like just hold in hold on daylight's coming we're we're trying to get in touch with Pentagon we're trying to get in touch with State Department trying to get in touch with Iraqi military and tribal sheikhs and anyone who can get our guys through this checkpoint and daylight breaks and it's starting to get really bright and really hot and we're like we're scot free we're we're home free everything's clear and then I get the most blood-curdling call at like 6 a.m. in the morning. My guy's screaming, Jeremy, save us, save us. You got to save us. They're bombing us. They're killing us. You got to save us, Jeremy. It was after such a heightened night of just on-the-edge fear. It was, it was horrific. And then the phone line goes dead. Oh, Jeremy. And U.S. fighter jets make two passes at our team and bomb them target them they come back a second time to finish the job and they actually miss the cars by just feet but they the shrapnel and and all this actually hit our cars hit our guys cause head damage and hearing loss and um, they make a pass on the other side of the road where some of our guys are just out for a morning walk and hit three guys there lay them flat on the ground and and move and move on, I guess, assuming that they've hit some portion of this ISIS convoy that had broken out in the middle of the night. As news breaks the next morning, it's like the largest ISIS outbreak probably in the history of this entire conflict. The, the biggest hit that the U.S. coalition has destroyed of ISIS fighters, I think, in the history of the conflict. And we were part of it. And um, it starts, starts making – I actually got on Twitter 
when like right after the call because we had exhausted all of our options at that point. Yeah. And I, I tweeted at the Pentagon and I think the State Department or something and actually tweeted the coordinates of our team and said, stop bombing our humanitarian aid convoy oh. at such and such location. And within some short time, I, I get a call from from the military side and the, the State Department side. And, you know, it was just a mess. Initially, the Pentagon denied it and said that wasn't us. We didn't have any any sorties, you know, within 20 kilometers of you guys. And then they came back like five minutes later and said, uh, that might have been us. Um, oh, man. And, I, I mean, it was just insane. The The story was all over international news yeah, for, yeah. for a day or two. And, um, you know, obviously our entire team was severely traumatized by it. But perhaps the most remarkable thing was two days later, they, they insisted on getting back to it in the same exact location, passing through the same exact territory to get to people who for two days hadn't received the food that we set out to take to them. Oh. And um, just, just remarkable Remarkable people. This, this that I'm talking about, all Iraqis, um, just really passionate about serving their country. They're they're the real heroes of this story. There's no transition out of that, other than <laughs> um, somebody is going to be hearing this conversation, and probably many somebodies, and their their head is ringing like a bell right now, and they are just wondering. What in the world can I do? Like, like I'm sitting in the middle of, of my like living room in Idaho. What can I do to help either preemptive love, which I, I guess I would love just like real practical steps for supporting preemptive love, but also just being a, uh, a force of change between how we view our neighbors. I'm wondering if you can, for as much as it's possible, give people a, a practical next step, something they can do to get up from their sofa now and, and start moving. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. So let's, let's start with the easier thing and move yeah. to the complex thing. Yeah. The, the easiest thing you can do right now is support preemptive love coalition and what we're trying to do in hard conflict zones like Syria and Iraq. Um, we're, taking years and years of lessons that we've learned in Iraq, working in hard places like Fallujah, experiences like I've just shared, and, and leveraging those with other friends, other partners, leaning heavily on local experts, becoming local experts ourselves slowly to respond in hard places like Aleppo as well. There's not a lot of people responding, so we would love to have your, your, your support. That's easy. Writing a check is easy. Mm -hmm. uh, logging on, sharing Facebook stuff, signing up for newsletters. We, we need that, but it's actually very easy to do. The far more complex thing that you've asked is how, how do I start to be, uh, I'll put it in my own words, how do I start to be a better neighbor? How do I, right. how do I start to broaden my tent poles of who's included in my tent? How do I extend the table and, and put another leaf in the middle so that I can welcome more people to my table? That is so hard. Mm. <laughs> and I don't want to make any 
bones about how hard that is. If you are surrounded by a, a certain kind of tribalism that only wants to regard itself as right and righteous and, and worth it, breaking out of that might be more difficult than you for you than it would be for someone else. Um, geography can play a very limiting factor in, in what you're able to do and what you're exposed to. Travel is one of the great normalizers of the world, one of the great uh, battering rams of tribalism. It, it just blows through walls and can help us see the other so much more passion, compassionately and humanely. So um, travel, if you can, by all means travel. And if you can't travel to another country, travel to another city. And if you can't travel to another city, then travel to another tribe inside your city or town. If Travel to a, a different denomination inside your own. Travel to a different religion than your own. Travel to a different political party than your own or a different race than your uh, ethnicity than your own. But travel. Walk across some street, some barrier, some boundary into other land and, and get to know those people, listen, go humbly, do that incarnation thing that I, I was talking about that, that I think we inherited so beautifully from our, our missionary training and our missionary days. And that alone, that, that's the story. That's the whole thing right there. Travel. It's an inward journey much more than it's an outward journey, but, but we have to make that journey. Well, I do hope that you will support preemptive love, support the work that they are doing, love your neighbor well, travel. It's a tall order for all of us, but worth doing because we have to do everything we can. And I'm saying this to myself as well, to get outside of the world of me and mine and into a world that, that is waiting. If you would like to support the work of Preemptive Love, you can go to preemptivelove.org. They have a gift catalog. It's right there at the top, selling beautiful candles and soap, like actually really beautiful. Those would make a great gift any time of year. If you want to chat with Jeremy, ask him any follow-up questions, he is on Twitter, at jcourt. All of the links and everything that I have spoken about during the show are on our episode page, as well as on the show notes for wherever it is you are listening to this show. Our website is newactivist.is, New Activist is, and our social media handle, is that the right way to say it? Both Facebook and Twitter are New Activist is. Even while we are off season, we will certainly be on social media and would love to talk more about this or any of the episodes as you go back and listen to them. Because this is the last episode of our season, I wanted to take a moment and just thank a bunch of people. So if you're up for that, stick around. If not, you can just stop listening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be awful of you, but it's okay. Anyhow, Nikki Toyamasito not only contributed great interviews, but also took this show from a napkin sketch of an idea to a fully formed entity. Aaron Clifford and Bethany Wang contributed as well in the form of interviews, and they were fantastic. My sisters at the Institute helped launch this show, and for that I am very grateful. Mike Hogan and my colleagues at IJM were very forward-thinking in seeing the need for a conversation like this. Relevant Podcast 
was wonderful in showing me how to make a podcast that is worth listening to. And Jeremiah Dunlap and Chad Michael Snavely were instrumental in helping me buy microphones and learn what buttons to push and be available even up till 10 minutes ago for technical help. Michael Forrest did our branding. Rachel Aldrich did the voiceover. Brianne Koffeltz was endlessly supportive. And Eve and Lucy, my daughters, were our very first guests on the test episode, which you may hear a little bit of in just a moment. Finally, I want to thank you. Thank you for listening to the show, subscribing to the show, sharing it with your friends, and engaging in this conversation. I hope that you have felt that it has been a conversation worth having, and I look forward to continuing it with you in just a few months. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of my colleagues at IJM, as well as Jeremy Courtney, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. So Lucy, first question, how do you spell your name, Lucy? L-U-C-Y. Good answer. So what's your name? Eve. How do you spell that? E-V-E. 